Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Marvel Reread Club and welcome to David Baldion. Hi, David. Hello, Matt. How are you doing? David, thank you so much for coming back after we unfortunately <laughs> wasted your time last time here. No, not at all. Thank you for having me back. So we should explain to the people at home that we had David on as a guest back on Amazing Spider-Man number 20. So that was a long time ago. And the audio was just no good. I sounded like Max Headroom. Then we just had to toss the audio and ended up not having him back on until now. But now he is going to come on again. We both have a long history with David. Steve, when he was a professional anchor, inked David's pencils. David has been a superstar penciler for Marvel Comics, DC Comics, for lots of different comics companies for how many years, David? I think it's been uh, around 14 years now or so, more or less. By the way, hi, Steve. I haven't actually said hello during the, the ah. recording, so hi, Steve. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> hi, how are you doing? It's late in the night here in, in, in Barcelona, in Spain, and I'm just a little, little, little dense, you know, a little, I have to right. get my, okay. my robins on. <laughs> well, thanks for staying up late. We wow. should explain it is three o'clock in Evanston, Illinois. It is four o'clock in Greensboro, North Carolina, and it is 10 o'clock in Barcelona, Spain, or Barcelona, Spain, That's as we've been pronounced it here in America. We all met a long time ago when Steve was regularly inking to bead, and then we all pitched a comic book together. We came up with a pitch called The Gentleman. But then we have just remained friends over the years, and we've gotten together when David has been in the United States for various conventions. So, David, you have such an amazing body of work in the 14 years you've been penciling for American comics. Just give us the very biggest highlights. I will not attempt to summarize them myself. You give us the biggest highlights of your career. Uh, I have to pick... Uh, X-Factor, uh, let's say Ben Riley Spider-Man with J.M. DeMatteis. What else? What else? Maybe Warriors, now that it, we're on the tails of the, of the Spider-Verse movies, they, they seem to have been picked up a little. Uh, X-Men Legacy, that, I think that, that would be it, mostly. Yeah, you've done so many things. You, one of my favorite things you did was you did uh, Zombie Christmas Carol. Oh, right. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah that was great. Was, See, I forget things. <laughs> that was absolutely gorgeous. You were the regular penciler on Domino, I believe. That's right. And Ninker actually inked myself in that one. Just, you have done so much stuff. So one thing that I asked you when you were on, and then the audio got eaten, and then I've asked other pencilers that we've had on since, you were going to be our first Marvel penciler on, now you are our third. Just what is your experience of the Marvel method? Have you ever worked with a Stanley-style Marvel method, or have you always worked with full script? Uh, actually, I think I've only just once worked with the, with something resembling the classic Marvel method, mm-hmm. and that was in the in one of the books I mentioned, uh, the Ben Riley Spider-Man miniseries with J.M. Mm-hmm. DeMatteis, in which J.M. worked with a with a page by page plot with no dialogue in the in the script, and then he would adapt to my art and so on. I say it's close to the classic Marvel method because JM, by the way, JM DeMatteis scripts, they should be published <laughs> because they're just brilliant to read. And, and you learn a lot from them, technically speaking. But the thing is, his descriptions of both actions and 
inner dialogue and, and inner sensations of, of the characters are so very detailed that it's almost as if you had the actual dialogue. So it's, a, let's say, a Marvel Method Plus, <laughs> so to say. It's not the bare description of the accident, just let you go with that. No, it's more detailed, it's more pinpointed, and mm-hmm. it's really interesting. Most of the time it's been classic panel by panel description and and dialogue in there. I cannot really think of many exemptions from Ben Riley. Yeah, right. I am a huge Jim DeMatteis fan. Mm-hmm. He was one of the writers who got me into comics, especially his Defenders. Oh, yeah. I, well, and then later when I wrote a script for... The Gentleman, which we all developed together, I included interlude the first and interlude the second and <laughs> end of interlude. And uh, that was totally me pulling that from James Devoteas. Yes. Well, that is just fantastic. Another thing I would say with James Devoteas is that like, he was assigned to write a Star Wars story as a fill-in issue. And he's like, okay, well, I don't believe in wars, so I'm going to write a story about a pacifist who is opposed to all the Star Wars and they they did the issue and it was like in the can and then lucasfilm finally got a chance to take a look at it and they're like no star wars is a universe without pacifists we all believe in the star wars star wars are good and they had they imposed all these last minute changes then jay mateus took his name off of it because he did not believe in wars steve did you have any other uh questions for david before we jump into this month's books um, I, uh, other than how are you settling into your new home? Oh, fantastically well. One gets used to the good things pretty fast, I must say. <laughs> no, we're, we're really, really happy. Good. That's wonderful. Good, good. Uh, David has a wonderful wife and child who we have both met, and we have stayed at your former apartment in Barcelona. Mm-hmm. You stayed in our former, former apartment. We had one in the middle, and that's the one we left. It must have been a couple months ago, three months ago. And we were lucky enough to get a new, bigger, nicer apartment right by by the old one. So it was a limited damage uh, move to <laughs> two streets away and the same oh, school nice. district. And you get to continue to live in one of the most beautiful cities in the world. That's right. Yes. We are both big fans of Barcelona. Let's go ahead and jump into tonight's books. We are doing June 1966, an epic month for Marvel Comics. So, David, have you had a chance to read these nine comics? Uh, unfortunately not. Uh, I only managed to read three of them. I, I read uh, Amazing Spider-Man, I read Fantastic Four, and I read the Daredevil issue. Okay. Because <laughs> okay. I it, would, it, would, it would be fun to check the, you know, the promise of things to come. Yeah. Since Spider-Man is a, is a guest star in there. And it, that was interesting, actually. Yeah. Pretty <laughs> yes. interesting from, a, Indeed. from an artist's point of view. Yeah. All yeah. right. Well, let's go ahead and jump in. Steve, do you want to go ahead and do Amazing Spider-Man number 37? I will happily do so. So, Amazing Spider-Man number 37 from June of 1966. Once upon a time, there was a robot. So, uh, as we've talked about before, we generally don't tend to be the biggest fans of Ditko's robots. They don't tend to be uh, nearly as well-designed as Kirby's. But we've got a couple of robots here that are a little bit more imaginative than we've had in the past. Yes, we've got a two-robot issue. He fights a madman who invents two completely different robots, very different. <laughs> robots on the inside and Dicko couldn't decide which one he liked more so we chose equally sized panels on the cover of spider-man finding the two robots and i think these are 
great robot sticko is about ready to leave this fuck, but I think he has upped his robot game. They are by far my two favorite robots of the many that Spider-Man has fought so far in this book. I will not argue with that. Edited and written by Stan Lee, plotted and drawn by Steve Ditko, lettered and cherished by Artie Simak. Yeah, we've had a number of folks who make evil robots in this book before, but we are not using any of them. This is a whole brand new guy who's been in prison for, what, 10 years? He finally gets out and he's picked up by an accomplice and they are clearly about to go out and do more crimes. And I do have to say, once again, one of the things about Steve Ditko that's great is his use of shadow and his use of how clothing drapes on people and things like that. And uh, panel number three on page two, uh, this really jumps out as a big combination of all those things in a nice way. Yeah. Spider-Man, let's see, did... Did he, was he here because he knew that this guy was getting loose? It's I don't remember very unclear why, he why here. he's here. This is, yeah. he, Spider-Man just seems to be following Frederick Foswell around because he knows Frederick Foswell is always interacting with a lot of crime in the city. And Frederick Foswell was former cellmates with right. this guy's trauma and has been spying on him. And then Spider-Man is just spying on Foswell and sees someone about to kill Foswell and punches him out without Foswell ever right. being aware of any of this going on. So then we get a really humorous few panels on page three where uh, Spider-Man jumps into a car with the guy who tried to kill Foswell, webs him to the driver's seat and forces him to drive while Spidey is wearing a fedora over his mask, I guess thinking that he would look a little bit less obvious. (laughs) But uh, the crook at one point is saying, use your spider power, get rid of him, you gotta, uh, when they're being followed by the cops. Spidey leaves him to his fate with the cops and heads into the Daily Bugle where things are a little tense these days with uh, Betty Brant having left. J. Jonah Jameson keeps on running through secretaries like nobody's business because nobody can stand to work for him. Pete puts a spider tracker on Foswell's headband so that he can keep track of what he's doing. Pete and Gwen meet up on the Empire State University campus, and Pete uh, sticks his foot in it a little bit here. But it looks like kind of on purpose, but kind of not. And I really think that there's some tension here between the story that Ditko is telling and the story that Lee is telling. And that's going to be really glaringly obvious next issue. But, you know, Pete's being nice to Gwen and saying, hey, heading for the same class. Mind if I join you? And she's just like, you know, look, you're stuck up. What are you doing? I hate you, basically. And he says, well, at least I'm not a temperamental female who drools over a fellow one day and then acts like an icicle to him the next and he immediately was like oh why did i do that (laughs) then she tries to slap him and he blocks her hand and he says to her anyone ever tell you that you're gorgeous when you're angry and i'm like okay that's just that's not (laughs) that's not endearing that's that's not okay if things have actually come to blows with a girl then you need to cool that down. You need to start de-escalating <laughs> this situation. And he is not doing that. To be fair, Flash Thompson is like, uh, what's going on? This is not cool. <laughs> like, is there actual physical violence between a man and a woman happening here? And if there is, I'm going to blame the man. And, uh, you know, which is generally a good idea. And Flash Thompson comes off as the total hero in this situation, right. going like, this is not cool. I'm going to interfere here. Woke Flash Thompson. So, (laughs) meanwhile, uh, Strom has gotten his first robot going, and it is this 
sphere with little polka dots on it and these kind of tentacle tendril kind of things that seem like they're able to stretch out and then collapse back into the sphere. Really interesting, pretty unique robot. It can also climb walls. Spider-Man finds uh, Strom attacking the factories of Norman Osborn, factories or labs or whatever this is. Norman Osborn, whom we all should know, will go on to become a very big figure in the life of Peter Parker and Spider-Man. But for the right now, we don't really know much I about sh- him. You know, so we've had Harry Osborn as Peter's nemesis at Emerson State University for a while. And then occasionally, when we've seen J. Jonah Jameson in his club, we have seen someone in the background who has similar hair to Harry Osborne. Well, suddenly, Stanley seems to have decided, hey, that guy who is frequently in the background at J. Jonah Jameson's club, he has similar hair to Harry Osborne. What if that's Harry Osborne's dad? And it turns out we now know more about Harry Osborne. He is sort of a spoiled rich kid with a businessman dad who is crooked and clearly has genuinely wronged Strom in the past and is very... uh, Norman Osborn always going to be a sweaty character. Instantly on the second panel, he appears here. He has beaded sweat on his forehead as he's like, I can't tell the kid how I cheated a Professor Strom out of his inventions and then railroaded him into jail when he began to threaten me. It has to be Strom who's after me. So right away, Norman Osborn... A character who is up to no good, a problematic business tycoon, an interesting character for Deco to co-create, or almost solo create, plotting, penciling, inking by himself, but not scripting, goes on to become one of the all-time great... Well, obviously, we've already had Green Goblin in the comics for right. 20 issues at this point. We are, I guess, 30 issues we've had Green Goblin in the comics, but we've had no idea who Green Goblin is. He has never had his secret identity identified. Spider-Man, as has been made abundantly clear, is terrible at figuring out anybody's secret identity, has made <laughs> no serious attempts to figure out who Green Goblin is, and in this issue is still... You know, he at least has a little bit of suspicion at the end. He's like, uh, something's yeah. up. But Ditko already starts implying in this issue that Norman Osborn will turn out to be the Green Goblin. We've talked in the past on this podcast about how there's sort of this myth that Steve Ditko left Marvel and left Spider-Man because Stan Lee wanted to reveal that the Green Goblin was Norman Osborn. And that violated... Ditko's Ayn Randian ethos and that he thought that crime should be faceless and we should never see his real face like we never saw the crime master's real face. But I think that isn't true. I think anyone who reads this issue and next issue can see that Ditko, when he was plotting and penciling, was clearly setting up that Norman Osborn was going to be the Green Goblin. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure I've read that Ditko said in later years that was deliberate to have that character in the background who would eventually become Norman Osborn in the club. That that wasn't that Stan Lee was like, hey, let's put these two together. Ditko had that as his plan all along, if I recall correctly. So Spider-Man finishes his battle with this robot. He has to cleverly figure out how to take care of it. The building he's in starts catching fire, and he decides, oh, well, this thing is probably not going to do well in a fire, so I just have to hold out on the heat longer than it can. And it works. Really gorgeous page on page nine of this battle of Spider-Man just being completely enmeshed in these tentacles, sort of um, anime-esque here, with um, Spider-Man engorged in these tentacles. We had a similar 
magical foe that Doctor Strange was fighting last month that looked similar to this. And I've talked about how both that character and this character are very similar to a future character in Jim Starlin's Dreadstar comics. Jim Starlin has said that his number one influence was Steve Ditko, Doctor Strange comics. And I love this amorphous blob type robot. It's so, could not be more different from all the other robots we've gotten from Ditko so far. I love it. Yeah. So uh, Strom, we see, is already working on his next robot from lessons he learned on that one. Of course, this new robot looks absolutely nothing like the other one. It really doesn't seem like much of a way that the his mistakes he made on the first one could really be informing this one very much. <laughs> we see a little bit of Jameson and Osborne at the scene of this destruction. It makes it clear that, yes, this is the guy who was in the club with J. Jonah Jameson. We then see Foswell taking on his identity as Patch the mob stoolie. Um, why you would want an identity as a stoolie is not exactly, has never really been well explained. <laughs> you kind of don't want to be that if you want to get secrets out of people. So Spider-Man follows his spider tracer to see what Foswell is up to, but Foswell left his own fedora in his apartment as he dressed up as Patch to go out and get some information. So Spider-Man comes by and finds his hat and nothing else there, and he's like, ah, there's that Patch guy that is often getting information from people. Why don't I follow him? Not realizing he's actually following the person he intended to follow in the first place. Spider-Man... Truly terrible at figuring out secret identities. (laughs) This is Spider-Man. You've had more than enough information to figure out that Foswell is Patch at this point. And (laughs) you just either you don't know or you don't care or you're just totally incompetent when it comes to figuring out secret identities. So Foswell, as Patch, has gotten a lead on where Strom is doing his uh, his stuff. And so Spider-Man follows him, goes ahead and throws a spider tracer onto the new robot. And I note, this is on page 13, panel 2, it looks like the robot now has a Spider-Man tramp stamp yeah. when this thing lands on him. <laughs> it hits him right in the, right the pelvis there, you know, as much as a robot can have a pelvis. Patch looks like he's about to get offed by these guys who, you know, once again, being a stoolie is not a good thing to be if you're hanging around a bunch of mobsters. But Spider-Man comes and rescues him, presumably because he is a police informant. I'm not entirely sure. Or maybe he just doesn't want to see somebody killed. They trap Spider-Man and Patch into this room with a steel door and uh, steel bars on a window that's like two stories up. Spider-Man climbs up and out of there and comes back around into the building to find the new robot attacking Norman Osborn personally, as well as his property. Now, on page 15 here, panel one, we see Norman's hair actually kind of flipping up which that hair does not look like it's going to move, personally. (laughs) I don't think we ever see that any other time. So Spider-Man draws the fire of the robot. They have a nice fight. But then Norman Osborn, whom Spider-Man is currently protecting, actually gets the drop on Spider-Man and knocks him out from behind. This is not something Spider-Man was expecting. He is uh, stunned long enough for Norman Osborn to get out of there. Spider-Man follows the robot, goes ahead and defeats it, and then he's confronting Strom about what he's doing, and then we see a view of Strom and Spider-Man and Patch and another goon 
all from a window that's like two stories above where they are. And then a sniper shot takes out Strom before he can say anything. And Spider-Man climbs up to the window and he's like, nobody's here. There's no way anybody could have gotten up here. What's up with this? And this is really the thing that kind of gives the lie to the old myth about Ditko not wanting Osborne to be Green Goblin, in that that is very much setting up the reveal later that he was Green Goblin. He was on his goblin glider up there and used that location to take out the guy who was about to rat him out. That's more or less the end of the issue, and this is the second-to-last Spider-Man issue. It is Second-to-last Ditko Spider-Man issue. Yes. Lots, second... of, lots more Spider-Man. <laughs> another, another 60 years to come after that. But, yes, uh, lots more Spider-Man to come. But yes, the last Ditko Spider-Man issue. And again, you've talked about how these post-Master Planner stories are generally poorly remembered. Overall, I like this story. Oh, and could not be a more important story. We also remember, I think, the most master planner stories was not introducing important characters. We think like, oh, they introduced the looter and a guy named Joe and these unimportant characters. Well, you could not introduce a more important character to the Spider-Man mythos than Norman Osborn. And he gets an excellent introduction. It's interesting. It's sort of a slow motion introduction because first we met the Green Goblin and then we had this guy hanging around in the back at J. Jonah Jameson's club. So we've sort of been gradually being introduced to him. But here we get our first real introduction to him with his mask off. And I think that he is right away a great character, a mysterious character and a character who possibly because Dicko is about to leave the book, a character whose identity will not be a secret for very long. Uh, As soon as John Romita takes over penciling and presumably at least co-pining the book, suddenly everybody's identities are about to start getting revealed, including Pete's own to Norman, including Norman's identity to Pete, and most importantly, including finally get to see the face of Mary Jane. So that is all coming up very soon. But first, we have one more Dicko issue after this in which Dicko's politics most infamously inject themselves into Spider-Man. We will see that next (laughs) issue. I've noted before that on Reddit, I've seen people say, oh yeah, you know, you're such a misogynist. You just referred to a woman as a female. You know, as a straight white cis male, I'm always like, oh, you know, what are we doing wrong now? What (laughs) normal language that I've been using for years turns out to be offensive now. And yeah, that's sort of the standard mode for straight white cis males. But boy, reading this, I'm like, yeah, no, female is bad. Like, calling someone, someone, at least I'm not a temperamental female who drools over a fellow one day and the next, like an ice cold to him the next. Oh, yeah, I had not realized how how offensive female could be. Sort of dehumanizing in some ways. (laughs) Yes, very much so. Another question I had was, Spider-Man is with Strom, and then he sees a gun pointed at Strom, and then sees it go off. Well, no, I guess it doesn't go off. He says, my spider sense, it's tingling. I gun at the window. Look out, another second would have been too late. He's all set to fire. Whoever it is, I can't let him get away. And then Strom is like, uh, and then Strom kills over dead. And he's like, oh, but the gun didn't fire. And Strom just... I guess Strom never even knows he was going to be shot at, but somehow the stress of the whole situation causes him to have a heart attack. It certainly seems to me as if Ditko intended Strom to be shot and killed here. I just assumed that is what happened. I no, guess nobody's shot. Not. The gun never goes off. Okay. Yeah, I guess you're right. He gets back in. Yeah, and, yeah you're right. And, it looks like a heart attack to me. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that Ditko intended for that to be he was shot. And then I'm guessing that Lee 
thinking about the Comics Code Authority was just, you know, trying to steer well clear of any sort of violence that would arouse their suspicions. Yeah. So, David, you read this issue. What do you think about the writing and art in this issue? Well, my first thought about the writing was mostly that how convoluted was the, the start of it's it's a little bit of a matryoshka situation in which one follows the other follows the other follows another one <laughs> just for the sake of having a fight because it really seems like peter is just looking for action yeah. for a fight the, the, he's bored so he's gonna follow this ex-convict newspaper man to see what what can we get out of there and let's see if we can trace out some crime and just punch some faces but other than that, it's really interesting. I, I think for the amount of, of action and information that, that is going on, it's agile. It's it's really fast. It has a fast pace. Also, that's probably something that, that Ditko has to be attributed to. But it's it's an interesting issue. Matt, you mentioned the, the robots and how spectacularly versatile Strom is in his design of robots. <laughs> yes. That's... Two very yes. different styles. <laughs> and it's funny because the, I didn't really remember the first robot. And what it first seemed to me as I read this time, this issue, is that it looks like a robot from from French BD sci-fi. Something that you might find in, I don't know, Valerian or something like that. And uh, well, of course, yeah. In The Long Tomorrow, the Mobius story, there oh, is right. a, yeah. a sex scene yeah. in, in The Long Tomorrow where it turns out that uh, one of the people involved in the sex scene is looks like this creature. Yes, I had not thought there, of that. I, there you go. I, I, I haven't made the connection, but makes me wonder what was in, in Ditko's reading table during the yeah. during this issue, you know? Because if, if it impacted him enough to include this kind of design, both in Spider-Man and, and in Doctor Strange, that might have caught his eye. But even the even the inking, the, you know, the use of the line, the... It seems so just right out of a, of a French book. Yes. In that first in that first page in which you follow the the robot from Strom's lab to Osborne's lab. Yeah, I really I hadn't really placed this one because I have not read this chronologically for a long, long time. Right. But I have not placed this one uh, this one issue in the whole Green Goblin career, but it. You mentioned that, and it's pretty clear that Steve that, that Ditko had something in mind mm-hmm. for, or they had something in mind for for Osborne because he has these two or three little details beyond you know the shot with his gun and so on, which is pretty clear. But just in that very page, in the last one, second panel, he's dressing up. He's clearly changing clothes from his Green Goblin suit. I mean, that's those little details that I have not seen Ditko do unless there's something behind them. Right. Most most times when Ditko's characters are casual, they're just casual. Their demeanor, the details of their demeanor is not particularly, you know, adjusted. But this little thing of normal adjusting his tie, like he's changing from something, mm. that you know, it jumped right at me because there's something behind that. And I had not made the connection. I didn't really remember about the Goblin Revelation later on. So it makes sense that at the very least, he knew something about him, about Norman, beyond the plot twist of the gunshot and so on. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. I think that certainly with what we know, you know, it all seems to very much set up that he is going to certainly not going to be a surprise when he is revealed to be the Green Goblin. You know, it's funny. I've said before when we were discussing Amazing Fantasy number 15, I talked about how they had to get rid of the coincidence. Spider-Man's career begins with this huge coincidence that his uncle is killed by the robber that he failed to stop, which was a very meaningful coincidence. It's the sort of coincidence that fuels good stories because it's like, oh, you know, it's the heavy hand of fate. What better irony that this happened? But then that first Spider-Man movie, it was like, we're going to cover like 122 issues of Spider-Man continuity. And we want to include another huge coincidence that happened years later originally, which is that Peter's friend, I guess they aren't really friends at this point, but Peter's acquaintance, Harry Osborne's dad, turns out to be the Green Goblin, which is another big coincidence. And so they're like, if we're going to have that coincidence, you can't have more than one big coincidence in a movie. So we have to brilliantly, I thought, in the movie of the first Spider-Man, come up with a way where it wasn't a coincidence that his uncle was killed, that, that it was the wrestling match where he wrestled that was robbed and that he failed to stop the guy outside the wrestling match. And then his uncle was waiting outside to pick him up. And that that's why they were then ran into each other non-coincidentally. But it, they did it so that they could maintain this coincidence, which is the fact that he has this relationship to Norman Osborn, which I think was very smart potting on their part. So this is a huge coincidence that he already has this connection to Osborn, who turns out to be the Green Goblin. But I think it works just fine here, and I think it works just fine in the movie. So meanwhile, I think we should probably move on. Let's make quicker work of this one. Here comes Terrible the Man Without Fear number 17. None are so blind. Please direct your accolades and bravos to Smiling Stanley writer, Jesse Johnny Romina artist, Fearless Frankie Ray Inker. So he's being credited as Frankie Ray here, not Frankie Okoye, even though a lot of people this month, as we're going to find out, are going to start being credited by their real names. And I think we've already had Frankie Okoye's name mentioned elsewhere, but here he's still Frankie Ray, swinging Sammy Rose and Letterer. So we pick up where we left off, where Spider-Man is attacking Foggy Nelson, accusing him of being Daredevil, even though he is saying, like, uh, he seems a little pudgy to be Daredevil, but he's like, well, it can't be the woman and it can't be the blind man. So clearly, if I've traced Daredevil to this address, clearly it must be Foggy. Finally, they convince him, uh, dude, it's not true. You should leave. So he does. But then Foggy, being the heel he often is, says, I decided that he is going to go ahead and sort of seem like he's about to admit to being Daredevil because that way he thinks Karen will be more attracted to him if she thinks he's Daredevil in disguise, secret pudgy Daredevil. Meanwhile, there is somewhat clever plotting in this issue where Daredevil, being quite proactive here, is like, well, I'm still mixed up in this thing with Spider-Man and the Master Marauder from last issue. And then there's the company that the Master Marauder stole the car engine from. I think that the best thing to do proactively is to go ahead and go to J. Jonah Jameson and make an announcement that your paper has been claiming it's Spider-Man and the Marauder are working together, right? So I can tell you how to trap the two of them. That's what. You've got to print a headline story in your paper. I'll tell you what to say. So then not only does J.J. Jameson put his paper, he goes on TV and he announces that the formula that the Mass Marauder stole was incomplete and sort of lays out a trap that there's going to be a chance to steal the real thing. Sure enough, the Mass Marauder falls right into this trap. Mass Marauder colored differently than he was last issue. Now his little mouth drapes are covered, colored white for some reason. Which just makes them look even more silly. 
<laughs> than yes. they did last <laughs> issue. And they already looked very silly. So then Daredevil's plan works beautifully. Everybody is converging on the car company again. Then we get a scene that is very disappointingly similar to last issue, where once again, Spider-Man and Daredevil, each suspecting the other of wrongdoing, run into each other. And it's once again on a rooftop, which is where they had their fight last issue. And it seems repetitive. I will point out that on page 10, those first two panels are definitely examples of the whole, like, what are they swinging from phenomenon. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Those are particularly oh, yeah. egregious. Very much so. They get into another fight on another rooftop, just like they did last issue. In this case, it's sort of justified that they're on a rooftop because the mass marauder shows up in a blimp and like the security guards are like, oh my god, we're being raided by a blimp. The blimp turns on world motors on the side as if it's like the Goodyear blimp. And they're like, oh, it's fine. It's just an advertising blimp. Like, um, <laughs> I think you're uh, you're being duped rather easily here. Sure enough, goons start coming out of the blimp and attacking the car company. Spider-Man and Daredevil sort of realize what's going on. They team up against the mass marauder. Daredevil ends up grabbing a gun and pointing it at the blimp and blowing up the blimp. It seems like there's still people on the blimp. I guess not. He thinks to himself, and it must be now before the blimp is so high that a crash will cause fatalities. Again, Stan Lee trying to put those caveats in there. I will point out that that blimp clearly burst into flames, which would seem to imply (laughs) that like the Hindenburg, this thing was filled with hydrogen instead of helium. And uh, dude, the U.S. has plenty of helium. Germany didn't have the helium at the time. That's why they went with hydrogen. We have the helium. That's on you. You (laughs) brought this one on yourself. That's just dumb. So this whole thing was supposed to be happening at the building where they had the engine formula. But then when the whole thing wraps up, the mass marauder switches places with a policeman. His face is still in shadows. We can't see it. And he escapes through the lobby of the building where Foggy and Karen are, implying that the whole thing also just coincidentally happened to happen on the building of the Nelson Murdoch offices. And Daredevil set this whole thing up. So apparently he was setting up this whole confrontation to happen on his own roof. This is a little unclear. No, I don't think so. It says minutes later in the crowded lobby of the bustling office building, Karen says, Foggy, I didn't expect to find you here, which she wouldn't have said if they were in their own office building. I just heard that Daredevil and Spider-Man had captured the masked marauders gang. So presumably she came down here just to see what was going on. And then he uses this as an excuse to further his subterfuge that he's actually Daredevil. He says, yes, Karen. I know all about it, sort of implying that that's why he is here, not near their offices. This makes no sense. Yeah, exactly. Why would they be there? And then the mass marauder overhears the whole conversation and is like, oh, now I know that Fucky Nelson is secretly Daredevil. And uh, nobody is trying to figure out how Daredevil could have such pudgy secret identity. And then they all go their separate ways. And that is the end of the issue. This is, you know, John Romita is a good penciler. Frankie Ray is a good inker. I like that this is a story about the hero proactively using the media, laying a trap, figuring out how to maneuver all of his various enemies and allies into position to solve the whole issue. But the Masked Marauder is not a great villain. There is some (laughs) awkward plotting in here, and it makes no sense that Falky and Karen would be there on the last page. This is not a great issue. 
I have no arguments with that. I, the, the only thing that gives it significance is the fact that it's the second issue of what would very quickly turn out to be John Romita Sr.'s audition, more or less, for taking over Spider-Man uh, in two months. Yes, and I think he does an excellent job drawing Spider-Man. He has quickly figured out that you don't have to worry about what Spider-Man is swinging from, and he can be <laughs> far above all of the nearby buildings and still be swinging on something. Maybe he's swinging on the blimp. We don't know. But he clearly has the hang of drawing Spider-Man and J. Joan Jameson. And I guess Aunt May shows up here briefly. Spider-Man is going to be in good hands. So, Tabid, what did you think of this issue? Uh, I, I went to this issue mostly because of what I mentioned before, because of the of the promise of things to come. Of John Romita drawing Spider-Man before getting into the Spider-Man book. It's a funny, strange uh, journey from John Romita trying to stick a little bit to Ditko's speedy proportions and then sliding into his more viral-chested, more mu- muscular Spider-Man and how he... Just gets a hold of, you know, the pattern of the webbing and the suit and how it's more dense at the beginning of the issue and, and less so later on. And all that slight evolution, it's really fun to see. I agree it's not a great issue. <laughs> in general, I mean, the bad guy has curtains in his face, on his face. <laughs> That's something hard to get over. Uh, yes. But it has, it has little details, like clearly the Daily Bugle's YouTube channel <laughs> that's that's i mean come on <laughs> yes well in the current spider-man movies that's basically what J. Jonah yeah, Jameson I mean, has. there you go but no all, all joking aside what i enjoyed most within the context of pretty so-so issue is precisely that, that how john romita is handling a, a character that is not his yet but he's trying to show what he can do with him and how he differentiates the body language from Daredevil to Spider-Man, how they twist differently, how they actually wake different, if that makes sense, when they swing and jump through mm-hmm. the city. That's not just the same poses and the same silhouettes. They behave differently. Daredevil is more human, heavier in a way, but also more graceful, while Romita's Spider-Man is clearly more than human, twists his body in a different way. It's it's really interesting how he's beginning to catch a, a little bit of a of a sense of the of the character and how by differentiating him from his character at this moment. And it's it's really fun. It's also fun. It caught my eye one moment when Peter Parker is watching well, YouTube, uh, with, <laughs> with James on there, and how on May, she's looking at him from outside the room, and he says, the dear boy, if only he weren't so frail. And the mm-hmm. next panel is a John Romita Sr., Peter Parker, square-jawed, strong, thick, manly. <laughs> He's not yeah. frail anymore, May. <laughs> He's not going to be in a couple of months. I believe that in Amazing Spider-Man in the, the prior book, but in this one, nah, that's not going to be like that anymore. Do we, when you draw Spider-Man, do you do more of a Dicko Spider-Man or more of a Romita Spider-Man? Um, I guess it would be more Ditko. Mm-hmm. I mean, I of course I love Romita's Spider-Man is my Spider-Man. The first one I read, the first one that you know I'm printing in my head. But my choice is more of a not so. I mean, he's got muscles, he's strong, but not that bulky, not 
not as bulky as, as obviously your Captain America or your Daredevil. This guy is, is more slender, it's longer, and well, we can go into the suit and the sleeves and all that. Mm-hmm. But if I had to pick one road, it would be Ditko. Mm-hmm. And as an artist who has professionally drawn Spider-Man, how do you feel about Ditko's decision to put so many webs on his costume that you then have to draw? Uh, an unnecessary workload. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine that wasn't, you know, an influence in the decision to use the black and white costume back in the 80s. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, let's drastically simplify what we're doing here. I mean, it didn't take long to, you know, forget them yes. while you were drawing. It's just, they just slide into into oblivion and that's okay. I mean, yeah. I love them as a, as a design touch, but uh, it's a pain. It's a pain. So, David, you just had time to do three books, so we're just going to discuss those three books with you. So let's go ahead and let you go for now, and we'll bring you back when we do Fantastic Four. So let's go ahead and finish this episode without you, and then we will see you next episode, David. See you next episode then. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks for making the time. Okay, so then we will go ahead and finish these books, and then we will bring David back for Fantastic Four, which will be in our next episode. Let's go ahead and finish up this month with Thor... Tales to Astonish, and X-Men. Steve, do you want to start with Thor? Yes, I am very capable of going through Thor here. So, The Mighty Thor 129, The Verdict of Zeus on the cover here. We have Zeus. You can tell he is not Odin because he does not have white hair and is not wearing a fabulous hat. But he continues to be off-model. Like, what color is Zeus's hair? It has changed, like, three times so far, and now he has blonde hair on the cover. I believe he has red-haired on the inside. That's interesting. Here, he has sort of strawberry blonde hair. Okay. On the, uh, just to be clear, on Marvel Unlimited, the subscription download thing, they sometimes recolor these things, or they always recolor them, and they don't always stick with the original color guides. So... Uh, here they fixed his hair color. Yeah, and I'm reading scans of the original issues, and he is totally blonde on the cover, basically same color as Thor, and then he is ruby red on the inside. Yes, because Greeks are known for their blonde and or red hair. Yes. <laughs> it's renowned for it. We have right. a pretty good cover with Zeus hitting a lightning bolt, and Hercules continues to wear the world's strappiest sandals. You may think... <laughs> young ladies listening to this podcast, that you may have strappy sandals. You do not. You cannot imagine what actual strappy sandals look like. Yes. Yes. (laughs) We start out with Thor in New York City on the street for no discernible reason here. And he gets a big scrum of looky-loos crowding in on him. And at first, Thor is patient with them. But then after a while, he's like, dude, you're all up in my personal space, which he said that exact line because that's how Thor talks. Uh, He's wanting to fly away. Way, but of course, he has to swing his hammer to do that. He's got people all around him uh, who had gone from admiring and gawking to now at this point getting really rude and pushy. So then a cab driver who's on the street opens the door and says, hey, buddy, get in. And we get a delightful exchange between Thor and this guy who looks not unlike Kirby. Actually, is, in fact, a dead ringer for Jack Kirby, the penciler and some would say co-writer of this book. Yes. Well, he's not a dead ringer because he's smoking a cigarette, not a cigar. (laughs) But yes, just a lovely exchange with this guy not treating Thor as a god or someone to be gawked at, 
but a regular guy whom he has respect for. And Thor says, you are quite a philosophizer, my friend. And he says, sure, but what cabbie ain't? But I've been around too. I caught me a bullet Nanzio in the big war. And Thor says, so you too have done your share for freedom. Yeah, just like you. I read plenty about you, pal. In spite of them crazy golden curls, you're an A1 Joe in my book. The cabbie gets Thor to where he's going and then walks away and does not think to pay the man. (laughs) And in terms of uh, no one in the Marvel Universe giving a damn about their secret identities, Thor has just gone up in his Thor guys into Jane's building where he's then walking down the hall trying to find her. So um, we should talk about the issue with this issue is that this issue has no reason to exist. In that last issue, Thor was with Hercules and they had settled their beef and then he saw that Hercules was in this horrific situation where he'd been forced to be ruler of hell by Pluto and Hercules was like desperate for help and Thor was like, nope, see ya, and just left him. And that leaves this entire issue for Thor to then go about his day. And then finally, on the last page of this issue, going like, oh, right, I should have just helped Hercules. Like, why didn't I do that? And so we have an entire issue of Thor just getting to the point where he should have been at the end of last issue. But if that had happened, we could not have met Tana Nile. Yes, Uh, and had some really fantastic Hercules action in here as well that we would not have gotten otherwise. We get a fantastic view of the scene on Olympus with all the gods sitting around doing their various things and uh, various dancers entertaining them, and there's musicians and all sorts of stuff. And then a classic example of like Gary style architecture here, which looked really cool when the architect just sketched in with pencil on a napkin and then some poor contractor had to actually build. And then these (laughs) poor people have to find a way to sit on. And they're like, I guess we could squeeze some furniture into the twisty, bendy stuff that you've built in this architecture. But it's going to be damn hard to fit some furniture in here. But all right, you know, this is you want to live in a Gary building, you have to accept the Gary design. So Pluto arrives here in Olympus and everyone's like, what are you doing? You should be in Hades. And he says, ah, no, I've got this contract and I can show you that I tricked Hercules into signing the document or not signing so much as putting his thumbprint on it because Hercules apparently is so illiterate he cannot even write his own name. (laughs) So Hercules is trying to reach Mount Olympus in order to plead his case with Zeus, ends up having a fantastic fight with a, is this a, oh, a yellow crested titan. Oh, also, I have to point out that Mount Olympus doesn't look anything like the actual Mount Olympus in Greece. (laughs) This is clearly something uh, more like Asgard. He's climbing up into the stars. But this uh, yellow crested Titan and Hercules have a fantastic knockdown drag out fight. Hercules finally makes his way into Olympus and Zeus is like, "Okay, no, you can't come here. You've been deceived, but you did sign the thing. So you got to go and do the thing. And Hercules says, "Okay, well, could I fight for my freedom? It's like, well, no, you're supposed to be in Hades. But if you can find someone else to fight for your freedom, then you can possibly get out of this. So, of course, he and Thor had just earned each other's respect just recently. So that will end up being the solution to this. 
Thor then reaches Jane Foster's door, and the door is opened by a really weird-looking woman. Uh, and this made is such a wonderful art by Kirby. Kirby had this job that maybe only gave him, and maybe gave himself, of, like, I have to draw someone who is clearly an alien, but just passes. Someone who is, <laughs> someone who, anybody can look at this person going like, okay, that's clearly an alien, but then they would doubt themselves and go like, well, I guess that could be an actual human woman. I mean, I guess it could be. I mean, she looks like an alien, but I, you know, okay, maybe that's a human woman. And that's what Kirby has to draw. Kirby has to draw someone who, if you find out she's an alien, you totally believe it. But you can also somewhat convince yourself that she's human. And that is Tana Nile. It's like, oh, yeah, Jane's new roommate. Yeah. What about her? Oh, she's an alien. <laughs> Uh, that tracks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Come to think of it, that makes a lot of sense. That explains why she looks like that. Yes. And in her first panel appearing, Coletta does a particularly poor job with her eyes, and she looks even more weird. (laughs) So, yeah, she really looks freaky in that first one. Thor's like, up, and who is this? And Jane's like, oh, it's a new roommate that I picked up to share rent. It's like, oh, no, I have no idea who she is, but she showed up, and I was just like, okay, yes, it makes sense to let her room with me, presumably because of some mental mojo that this woman is pulling on them. I'm not even sure there's any mental mojo going on. I mean... After all, Jane Foster is supposed to be making money as a nurse, but her boss hasn't shown up to work in months. So (laughs) she's like, I guess I have to get a roommate. You know, Manhattan then isn't so different from Manhattan now. And (laughs) she's like, she just put an ad in the paper, presumably looking for a roommate. And this clearly alien woman is like, I want a roommate. I will (laughs) sign up to live with Jane Foster. I think it's just a sheer coincidence that Tana Nile ends up staying with the girlfriend of Thor. Yes, Marvel, the land of coincidences. And uh, the last time we see her face on page 10, also, she looks quite freaky looking, though, for different reasons than the first time. So Thor had gone to Jane to let her know that he was going to renounce his godhood to become a mortal man so that he could then marry her, since Odin had forbidden Thor, the god, to marry a mortal. So Thor shows up. There's Balder and uh, who has a B on his helmet, unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> the letter B. Thor is saying, well, this might be my last time ever in Asgard. Hail and farewell, basically. They then head on into Odin's presence. And Odin has essentially gotten word that Hercules has requested that Thor be a champion for him. And so Odin is like, okay. So well, I gotta uh, disagree with you here. I don't think that Odin knows anything about Hercules. I think Odin is just like, well, Thor, you have to do something nice for somebody, and I'm going to make you wait in limbo until you get a chance. Come forth, son of my heart. It is time for me to send thee through the doorway to all the worlds, for tis thy duty to wait in limbo, my son, for on this fateful day the whispering wind shall call thee, and thou must fulfill thy destiny by following wherever it may lead. So hath it been written. And he's just saying, like, I just think you should help somebody, and I don't know who, so I'm going to make you wait in limbo until you do. Yeah, uh, the prophecies have said, in three worlds shall the god of thunder stake all on behalf of another. So, yeah, I guess he knows something's up for some reason. But, yeah, I think you're right. He doesn't actually know exactly what's going on, but he has an idea of more or less what's going on. 
Hercules, meanwhile, is trying to convince folks in Olympus to be his champion. He goes to Ares, and Ares is just like, yeah, I'm not doing anything for anybody else. It's like, yeah, I'm a fantastic warrior, but <laughs> you, you, this is your own problem. And so then this will be an ongoing – Ares will be an ongoing Marvel character. He will eventually get his own miniseries, I think, in the aughts. And oh, really? uh, we'll join the Avengers for a while and uh, what? has a very cool look with uh, his mohawk and uh, beard. I'm a fan of him. Uh, you know, he won't be a major Marvel character, but he'll be an ongoing minor Marvel character. Yeah, no, I had no idea. He later got his own miniseries. Hercules is then asking Hermes. He's realizing his time is running out. Pluto finally catches up to Hercules. He is absolutely sure that Hercules is not going to find anyone who's going to risk their neck for him. At that point, Thor is drawn through some sort of vortex into Olympus and finds Hercules about to be pulled down through this portal into Hades. And Pluto is like, impossible. None there are who would dare. And Thor says, none save a warrior born. The god of thunder dares. And next issue, Into the Netherworld. So presumably this will go from Olympus to Hades to Earth. They said there's going to be three worlds which are involved in this thing. And I am looking forward to an exciting next issue. Yes. So again, this issue should not exist. Thor should have just helped Hercules last issue and should not have had to spend this entire issue finally thinking better of it and realizing like, oh, duh, I could have just helped Hercules. He's a good guy. But then <laughs> this is a good issue. We get to meet Chanda Nile and we get to see Hercules fight a bunch of other cool guys and we get to meet some new Greek gods who will be ongoing Marvel characters. So it's a perfectly fine issue that just exists because Thor was a dick last issue. <laughs> Uh, that might be a little bit harsh on him. Now, Tales of Asgard, Home of the Mighty Norse Gods, fabulously written by Stan Lee, fantastically drawn by Jack Kirby, fastidiously inked by Vince Coletta, and finally lettered by Artie Simak. At the end of the previous Tales of Asgard, everybody had just gotten a refresher on what Ragnarok is all about. And as they got this, they're like, hey, it seems like Loki is supposed to be a key ingredient in Ragnarok happening. Maybe we should start treating him like the villain he is. So he's being dragged off and thrown into this thing that has him suspended animation in an image that I presume is Coletta's take on the newly discovered Kirby Crackle, yes. which still has its own charm to it. I actually kind of like the way it looks, although it's I don't think it looks anything like Kirby was intending. Odin then summons not only Thor, but also the Warriors Three, and tells them that they must go to the land of Muspelheim to fetch something called the Warlock's Eye from the Temple of Mystics, because this is a very dangerous weapon, and they can't let it be in the hands of people that they can't trust. Well, we see that the item has been taken by somebody in the forces of Muspelheim, and he is wearing it as a helmet. We see that it looks like a big eyeball in a freaky-looking helmet frame-looking thing. It can shoot force bolts of some sort. Incredibly, as the mysterious beam sweeps the battlements, the hapless defenders fall like stalks of wheat before the inexorably swinging scythe. So this is a really nasty weapon 
that he's got here, the Warlock's Eye. And we just end seeing Thor and the Warriors 3 approaching battle. That is it. So, uh, you know, again, these Tales of Asgard generally tend to be pretty slow moving in terms of plot, but pretty action packed and energetic in terms of the actual scenes. Let's just talk about how great that writing is. That was just a beautifully written passage that you just read. And Stanley, even if you want to give him the minimum amount of credit for these books, is just really knocking himself out. He's just really writing beautiful prose that has so much respect for the kids who are reading this book. I mean, obviously, they knew that it was mostly kids reading the book, but they were just going like, okay, these are better be kids that can understand what an inexorably swinging scythe is. But <laughs> if you don't have the vocabulary necessary to read a Marvel book, you'd better get it. You'd better, you'd better rush to the dictionary. You'd better ask your parents. You'd better do whatever you have to do to get the right vocabulary. And I grew up with a fantastic vocabulary because of all the Marvel comics I read. And that's all due to Stan, who just had a tremendous amount of respect for his readers and really beautifully written prose. And it's understood that Kirby had a special love for Tales of Asgard, but so does Stan. And Stan is really killing it on his book. Obviously, Stan loves writing Falstaffs. I'm sorry, I called him Falstaff. Stan, <laughs> loves, Stan loves writing Volstagg's dialogue, which is his tribute to the Shakespearean character Falstaff. But he loves all this. He just loves everything about Tales of Asgard. Yeah, and as you said, even if you want to take the idea that the pencilers did all the plotting, even if you took it to the extreme, yeah, all the dialogue in here, this is this is just 100 percent Lee. (laughs) One thing I will say is you were saying that you got all this vocabulary from Marvel Comics. I do not disagree entirely, but it should be pointed out that our mom has a Ph.D. in English and was an English professor. So (laughs) that that also had something to do with it. But uh, certainly Marvel Comics fans are renowned for their extensive dialogue, at least for over the top adjectives, if nothing else. At one point, I was picking up my three-year-old daughter from daycare in New York and was talking to her. And then another parent was picking up their child and said, how does your child talk like that? How does your child have such a large vocabulary? And I said, oh, well, you know, and then Lily said, what is she asking? And I said, oh, she wants to know why you're so articulate. And then the woman said, that's how you do it. That's why your child has such a large vocabulary. Exactly. Well, that's just, actually true. Yeah. You'll just use words like articulate to her and assume that she knows what she, you're saying. <laughs> and uh, so then that answered that. But uh, yeah, Armand <laughs> did that with us as well. Yes. Overall, a as you said, nothing in this issue is necessarily crucial to pushing the plot forward, or very little is. But still, this is an entertaining two stories in here. Yes, very entertaining. Inked by Sinat would have been a thousand times better, but even Inked by Coletta, fantastic two stories by William Kirby. Cannot argue with that. Okay, let's go ahead and jump on to Tales to Astonish, number 80, featuring Submariner and the Incredible Hulk to the death, it says. And it's got a cover. Now, I don't know. If I had to guess who made this cover, I would say Tom Palmer, who... Uh, he's not around yet but as far as i know it's not around yet but this looks like palmer inking this cover is by gene cohen and shows the submariner being attacked by the behemoth soon marvel will finally find the perfect anchor for gene cohen anchor named tom palmer but i think he is not at marvel yet but whoever is inking this is doing a very good job maybe it's cohen himself this does not look like palmer to me personally this looks like it's probably still everett Something about Submariner's nose looks like Palmer to me. Submariner's nose and mouth. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can. Yeah, his face. You're right. His face kind of does, but nothing else really does. The textures don't really work for me for that. But yes, I see what you're getting at. So then let's go into the, the issue. I think this is the first time this is credited not to Adam Austin, but to Gene Colan. Story by so. Scotland Stanley, pencils by Grinnin Gene Colan, inks by Dazzlin Dick Ayers, lettering by Stone and Sammy Rosen. Then I'm sure people reading this book are like, hey, they've got a new penciler in this book who looks a lot like the last penciler. Because <laughs> Gene Colan, in order to work for both DC and Marvel, has been going by the pseudonym Adam Austin the entire time he's been doing this book, even though Gene Colan's style is pretty inimitable. And here, he finally gets credit under his own name. Speaking of vocabulary there. Yes. So then <laughs> Submariner is still fighting the behemoth along with Dorma. He doesn't realize that Krang is using one of the Puppet Master's puppets to control the behemoth. Then we get, you have been focusing a lot on the big issue of can Atlanteans swim or do they have to walk? Well, we seem to have confirmation that they have to walk here because it turns out that Atlantis has a gate around it. A gate that, that is like, you know, 15 feet high and is big metal bars. Now, obviously, if people can swim, then what's the point of having a gate? The only reason to have a gate is if people can't swim. So seemingly, Summoner is the only person who knows how to swim, although Dora thought about swimming last issue. Generally speaking, in sci-fi stories, Stan and Jean, if you've got an undersea city, they have domes. You're supposed to have a dome. But <laughs> there's no dome here. There's a gate. Summoner rips up the gate, flings things at the behemoth. Now, what a big art problem eels. here. He's, he summons electric eels and sends them to go shock the behemoth. No, no. no? First, on page what? five... No. On page oh, okay. five, he, he tears up these bendy pieces of the gate to throw them at the behemoth. Right. And then on page six, he attacks the behemoth with electric eels. And the electric eels and the bendy pieces of the gate look identical to each other under <laughs> Colin and Ayer's pen. They're both like uh, wavy black things. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah. Okay. Shocking the behemoth with electric eels causes it to then shock Krang's hand and he drops it. He has sent the puppet master away already, and now he has nothing he can do. I've heard enough of your craven whimpering. Get out. You mean I'm free? As free as a coward may ever be. But now he's gotten rid of the puppet master, and now he has no one to make him a new model when the old one gets shocked. So now, without being controlled, the behemoth is easily defeated by Samariner, but then Krang kidnaps Dorma and says, I'll kill you unless you marry me. And then Dorma just tells the Submariner through an intermediary, I'm going to marry Krang. And Submariner doesn't realize she is doing so because she has a gun to her head. And that is where the issue ends. Next issue, when a monarch goes mad. This is a perfectly fine story. You know, I like the behemoth. Having him be controlled by Krang is fine. It is, as you know, a continuous pet peeve of mine that when people fight the puppet master, they end up shocking him psychically from afar and never have to defeat him in person. And that happens again here. But it is a perfectly fine R8 issue. Having Dorma have to marry Krang is sort of awkwardly plotted, but it's a fine escalation of the story. This is all fine. Yeah, I like that Gene Cohen finally gets credit under his own name. I like the art inked by Ayers, but it's merely an okay issue. Ayers is actually not a bad fit for Colin. You know, I say there are two Dick Ayerses, you know, <laughs> one one who's inking I like and one who's inking I don't. But the style that I don't like would still work decently on Colin. 
because Colon has a lot of rich blacks and thick lines and various stuff that Ayers's sometimes thick brush does not have a problem with. Yeah. We uh, once again have some tears on Dorma's face on the bottom of the ocean on page 12, which, you know, I, I know I should stop pointing that out. We should just <laughs> accept that that's the way things work, but it just gets me every time. Yeah. <laughs> I will point out that when the behemoth gets sucked underground, the way he's defeated, we are told that a thousand year old pit of quicksand, the one enemy against which no amount of strength or power may prevail, is what sucks him down. Once again, the whole thing about as kids, we are trained to believe that quicksand is a big danger that you have to worry about in this world. Yes. But I can say as an adult, I think we were misled. You are only 51 years old, Steve. For all you know, you have not even begun to suffer from the quicksand danger that is still awaiting us. <laughs> well, what is the line from Hamlet? Uh, there's more, more in, in this... heaven and earth than we can dream of in our philosophies, something like that. So tell me a story about the Hulk, Matt. All right, the Hulk, they dwell in the depths, script Stanley, D.H., Doctor of Hulkishness, Lance, Jack Kirby, M.H., Master of Hulkability, Art, Bill Everett, B.H., Bachelor of Hulkosity, Lettering, Artie Simek, P.H., The Pride of Hulkdom. Once again, we have just light Kirby layouts, heavy Bill Everett penciling and inking. It looks more like an Everett book than a Kirby book. The Hulk is soaking when suddenly he is teleported below the surface of the Earth, where you have Tyrannus, who we have not seen since issue five. He is now a shriveled old man due to the events of that issue. He has his own moloids, who are not to be confused with the mole man's moloids. But now for the first time... I looked this up. Apparently, they are referred to as the Tyrannoids. But yes, they are clearly a related species. Yes. He demands that Hulk help him because he is fighting the Mole Man. So this is the first time of many times we have Tyrannus get to fight the Mole Man. They are both people with underground empires we have met in previous Marvel comics. Now, we go on and on on this podcast about high ceilings. Talk about your high ceilings. Um, <laughs> this is uh, the Mole Man's underground empire seemingly has extremely high ceilings to the extent that he is launching missiles. Generally speaking, you need to build a lot of high ceilings. And he's got an air force <laughs> underground. <laughs> that's that's high ceilings, my friend. He also has the Octosapien. He has <laughs> an eight-armed Octosapien robot. Now, my big problem with this robot, which is to say my big problem with this issue, is that every time the Octosapien attacks, you know, he's got eight arms which are fanning out in a wagon wheel from his body. And every time he fights somebody, he's just using two arms. You go to page eight, jump ahead. He's just using whichever two arms are closest to whoever he's fighting. And the other six arms are just these useless appendages. What's the point of building an eight-armed robot if the arms are all shooting off in different directions and only two can be used at a time? I am very interested in what this thing would have looked like under Kirby's full pencils. But I'll also point out that on page four, it looks to me like uh, the Octosapien has nine legs. Uh, so, uh, that's odd. Also, uh, another thing that occurred to me is remember the Octomom? Yes. Well, sapiens are people, so you could refer to her as an Octosapien. Yes. Uh, my, my big problem with the art in this issue, uh, and this is entirely on Everett, is 
remember, the Mole Man is supposed to be the Mole Man because he was so hideously ugly that everybody recoiled in horror at his ugliness, and so therefore he retreated underground. He looks relatively handsome <laughs> in this story, which I have a big problem with. I guess. I can imagine myself still rejecting him, but uh, he looks more handsome than he did under uh, Kirby's full pencils. It turns out that Tyrannus, uh, in order to force the Hulk to do what he wants to do, has kidnapped Betty, Rick, and Glenn Talbot, because after all, Hulk will do anything for Glenn Talbot. <laughs> but as we were looking at them, I was thinking back to Hulk number five, which had full Kirby pencils and presumably Kirby took on the plotting. And it was just one of my all-time favorite issues. And when I, for some reason, it wasn't until I saw Rick and Betty once again as prisoners of Tyrannus so that Hulk would do what they wanted to do that I suddenly started missing Hulk number five and going like that was so much of a better story than this one was where Hulk ended up being a gladiator and he ended up doing all sorts of work for Tyrannus. And that was, I feel like, a much more of a high point in the Hulk's history than this. The Hulk then says, no, I'll just free them and I'll fight Tyrannus. Then we have the underground Air Force zipping over his head with presumably very high ceilings. The Hulk is leaping around and busting up various things. He seems to be fighting both Tyrannus and the Mole Man. The Mole Man sends his Octosapien after him, who only uses two arms at a time. The Hulk gets it wet and blows it up, but then the Hulk is Bruce Banner again. He says, it's it's like a miracle. The Hulk is gone. I'm normal again. But where? Why? And for how long? Next issue, the most startling developments of all to stagger your senses and dazzle your eyes, which seems like a clear example of Stanley has absolutely no idea what's going to happen next issue. Like literally every single Marvel comic ever published could have ended with next issue of the most startling developments of all to stagger your senses and dazzle your eyes. That's stock copy. You know, I like Everett's pencil cynics on this issue. I, I like Everett as an artist. I miss the amazing work Kirby was doing way back in Hulk number five, but it's nice to have Terrence back. It's nice that there's a twist on his story that he's now a shriveled old man. It's, Good and logical to get the first of many Tyrannus Moleman battles. Yes, I, that's one of the things I really appreciate about this is acknowledging that, okay, well, we've had these two underground civilizations run by madmen who have some sort of pale humanoid servants. Let's go ahead and get these two together. <laughs> I think that Stan Lee has pretty much made a much more conscious choice in the last year here to go ahead and really start making it clear that this is an interconnected universe. And it's not just sort of a big special thing when it turns out that somebody interacts with somebody else's villains or the other hero or whatever. Yep. The only other thing I really have to say about this issue is when Hulk turns back into Bruce Banner, Bruce's glasses apparently just reappear on his face, you know, having not yes. been Bruce Banner for many, many months and now being underground. Somehow they're just there. Bruce Banner also looks pretty husky. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess maybe having been Hulk that long does the same thing as uh, lifting weights. I don't know. Presumably when you become the Hulk, your face swells and swallows up your glasses. So the glasses have just been inside the flesh of his face this entire time. That, and that then the just, flesh retracts. Just just stop. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we are going to move on to our last issue of this episode, although not the last issue of this month. It is X-Men number 21. On the cover, we see the X-Men battling this sort of flying, well, it looks like flying, it might be leaping, robot. In the background is a tied-up 
Professor X and Lucifer. Uh, I have to say, this is a bizarre cover. Generally speaking, I look at Marvel covers of the period and I'm like going, oh, why do they have all those words on the cover? You're covering up this beautiful arch by Kirby or Ditko or whomever. Looking at this cover without any words on it, it seems so naked and so creepy and silent. Just put some words on it, man. This is weird. <laughs> yeah, and also the layout reminds me a little bit of the cover of X-Men number one. Yeah, it does. What color is Cyclops's eye beam on the cover in yours? It's ice blue. Yep, they kept that here. And Jean's hair is uh, a very light strawberry blonde rather than the usual blood red that they have it as. It's blood red here. Interesting. I continue to not be a fan of Gavin's art, so I'm just not a fan of this cover at all. The X-Men just fought giant robots a couple issues ago, and here they are fighting them again. Not at all a fan. So Roy Thomas is still doing X-Men. Exemplary editing by Stan Lee still gives himself top billing. Uh, extraordinary writing by Roy Thomas. Exceptional art by Jay Gavin. Exhilarating inking by Dick Ayers. And exasperating lettering by Artie Simak. One thing I should address is I think earlier I was talking about how Jay Gavin and Werner Roth seem to be going back, you know, the names seem to be going back and forth. So far, we've only seen Jay Gavin. So I am unsure whether I imagined that or whether it was because of the way I was reading things on Marvel Unlimited that the credits on Marvel Unlimited always listed him as Werner Roth. And then on the inside, it was Jay Gavin. So I'm, sorry, will... I'm not sure it's exactly clear from what you just said that Werner Roth has been penciling under the pseudonym Jay Gavin. People are starting to emerge from their pseudonyms in Marvel Comics this month, but he is so credited as Jay Gavin. Yes, yes, that is correct. Now, one of the things about this being Roy Thomas is we are going to get a lot of dialogue, more than a Stan Lee comic. Which is saying a lot. Yeah, it is. It very much is. Roy Thomas is doing his best Stan Lee impression, and he kind of outs Stan Lee's Stan Lee in a way that is not necessarily great in some instances here. Roy Thomas will go on to do some fantastic things for Marvel, but at the beginning here, he has some growing pains. I got to say, I was a big fan of last issue of Thomas's debut on the book. I'm less of a fan of this issue. For one thing, it wasn't exactly clear last issue. The whole Eunice Bob part of the story was just going to be cut off. And that when they actually fell on the subway train and were hustled away, that was going to be the end of them in this story. And now I'm like, okay, retroactively, that feels like somewhat poor potting that, you know, the story began as a Eunice Bob story and now it's gone off in a completely different direction. Yeah, as I was saying before, having them fight giant robots again so soon, ultimately not a big fan of this issue, not as much of a fan as I was of part one. Yes. So the X-Men, when we last saw them, had taken off from their hangar, which apparently takes up almost an entire wing of the X-Mansion. And they have flown out to the desert southwest, which is where Lucifer has his uh, machinery under a butte. So the X-Men are there to take care of this. Right as they get there, these, what we were later going to find out, are robots, although at first they look like some sort of uh, energy weapon shooting down into the butte. So that is going to be something they'll have to deal with later. This butte apparently is on the land of a man out west who runs a dude ranch. Someone's doing something on my property. I need to go take care of it. So he and his two uh, ranch hands head off with rifles to, <laughs> to possibly take care of this. Page three, I was talking about Roy Thomas and his dialogue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this page. Oh, my. Could you describe this page for me, Matt? 
there are just 5,000 speech balloons, anthop balloons. In panel number three, the speech balloons are overflowing above, overflowing to the right. Uh, panel five, once again, the speech balloons are overflowing the panel borders. It is too much. The other thing about panel three is not only are the um, speech balloons busting out of the panel borders, that's even after the panel borders have been expanded to make room for this, the yeah. top and bottom of the panel have been bumped out to barely sort of a dog leg from the uh, horizontals to the right of it, which, as we were discussing in the episode we had with Riley Brown, that is one thing that just bugs the crap out of me. And uh, he agreed with me on that. But I don't blame the penciler here. I don't even blame the letterer here. This is Roy Thomas. The letterer just had to do what he could to cram all this stuff in there. And it just makes a mess of this page. So anyway, I just wanted to address that. Yes. <laughs> the X-Men are trying to get to their ultimate destination after landing. And this is around the time the dude ranch hands end up showing up on a trail that apparently goes up the side of the butte. And they're shooting at the X-Men. The X-Men defend themselves in various ways, both hilarious and, uh, let's be honest, deadly. <laughs> on, on page five, you have this horrific panel of horses and riders plunging down into a, a stream that's just on the base of the mesa there. And I mean, the way those things are falling, someone or something is going to die. Half of those living beings are going to die. But in the next panel, of course, we see them all just wading out of the water just fine. <laughs> I'm like, you're not fooling me. And then Iceman takes the owner of the property freezes his torso in a gigantic block of ice. They plop him on his horse and, you know, have the horse just walk him home. <laughs> Either that guy's going to die of hypothermia or because of his lack of balance and his top heaviness, he is going to go toppling off of that horse <laughs> and be immobilized in the middle of nowhere, possibly cracking his skull, depending on how the ice block lands. And, I mean, and we should say that this entire... X-Men versus Dude Ranch owner storyline has nothing to do with the threats to the universe that are going on in the rest of the issue. This is just an entirely little humorous aside on the way to a massive fight for the sake of the universe. Yes, and a fun aside. Uh, and yeah. I know I'm talking about how this stuff all looks like it would quite have killed somebody, but it's lots of fun. I mean, it's good Silver Age comics fun. So it seems that this river has been diverted into the inside of the butte in order to cool the machinery that uh, Lucifer has in there. Iceman makes an ice raft. They float inside the thing. And then there's some kind of big whirlpool that is pulling them down. Professor X is wearing a helmet to protect himself from Lucifer's mental stuff, but he can still communicate with the X-Men. and. It, it's a little confusing, but he had to stay behind because he is in a wheelchair and Lucifer is not making this stuff ADA compliant. So, but Lucifer's robots come out and grab Professor X and bring him inside as well. We have a really underwhelming splash page on page eight. Professor X is face to face with Lucifer and we see all the machinery that's involved in the project that the aliens are trying to do. We're going to, in our next 
episode, we're going to be looking at Fantastic Four 51, which also has a whole splash page just dedicated to a giant piece of machinery looming over the heroes. Boy, oh boy, you could not get a better Goofus and Gallant pairing because (laughs) that is such a beautiful page that totally justifies its splash page for a big piece of machinery. And this one just does not. Like, why, why things were built the way they were on this machinery makes no sense. It is not impressive machinery. Okay, so the X-Men are trying to rescue themselves from this whirlpool. They end up in this underground cavern where they are caught by a big glass box. It's always convenient that these things are like some kind of plexiglass because then we can see the action of what's going on inside them. (laughs) The beast is captured by one of these robots. Iceman is going to rescue him by making a little surfboard. Says, I've got to hit that oversized garbage pail with an icy surfboard at full speed. And I'm like, what is the full speed of a surfboard shaped chunk of ice with no means of propulsion? Yes. <laughs> I'm like, there's no wave. There's no, I'm, even as a uh, an eight-year-old, I probably would have been like, eh, I don't get that. <laughs> Anyway, Iceman and Bobby knock down those robots and are almost able to get out, but then they're trapped in by another trap. Lucifer decides to start monologuing, and he is telling Xavier all about how his alien race's Dominus machine is able to enslave planets. We see some uh, okay depictions of what this is supposedly going to be like. At this point, all of the X-Men, not just some of them, are in that glass box, but they are able to escape by Jean Grey using her telekinesis to switch the power switch off on the thing that keeps the door closed. After being told what to do, of course, Jean has nary a thought in her head, has never once figured out what to do in any situation ever, and they always make it clear that Jean has to be told what to do, which drives me crazy. Why can't they write Jean as a more capable person who figures these things out on her own? Or as we've pointed out before, maybe she is way ahead of them and they just think they have to explain everything to her and she's just rolling her eyes the whole time. Uh, Yeah, this one sort of is a little ambiguous on that because the Beast, he doesn't actually give her the whole plan. He's just like, can you use your telekinesis through this glass box? And she says, I think I see what you have in mind, Hank. I'll try. One of the first robots flipped that tiny lever in order to open the front of this cage. Perhaps as we passed by it, I can do the same. They say, you did it, Marvel girl. So I'll, I'll push back on that a little bit. On this one, you know, she figures it out on her own with just the barest of prompting yeah so the x-men are able to free themselves from this prison and lucifer sends his robots after the x-men a marvel girl uses her telekinesis to pull lucifer's cape over his own head which just very much reminds me of edna mode no capes <laughs> thing yes so the professor is giving the mental command saying do not interfere all the x-men are like clearly the professor is being mentally dominated by lucifer scott seems to be the only one who takes the professor at his word and actually goes so far as to zap angel in the back we get oh man hold on just a minute I I actually had an air horn set up for this when we did oh, the no. first. <laughs> you can we, add it in editing. We've got soupy sales again. We've got soupy sales again. So I, I will edit in the air horn right here. Okay, there 
where's the air horn? <laughs> yes, on the top of page, what is this, 18, the beast says, and furthermore, I, what's that sound behind me? Someone says, Beast, look out. It's one of the robots. I didn't think it was Soupy Sales. So, so uh, this is not – so this is a different writer. Yes. We have two different writers, both obsessed with Soupy Sales and whether or not things are Super Sales. This is so <laughs> strange. This is so, so weird. This was the point when I read through these things the first time when, because this is not Stanley, I was like – what is going on? <laughs> what is going on? As I said, I don't think this is the same year that he sort of had his notorious prank about telling kids to steal money from their parents' wallets and to send it into him. I, yeah, I don't know why all of a sudden. But I think that here, you know, Roy Thomas, he's trying to be an ersatz Stan Lee. So Stan Lee is making soupy sales references. Roy Thomas will also make soupy sales references. I guess it is so weird that Stanley has been doing it so often, and it is even weirder that now he has his protege taking it up. Yeah, it's like Roy is like, gotta be Stan, gotta be Stan. What does Stan do? I gotta do the same. Stan is obsessed with soupy sales. I have to be obsessed with soupy sales. Yeah. In the end, the X-Men are able to make the robots destroy each other. Lucifer's commander, basically, is like, what did you do? You let those robots die. Now we can't run the Dominus machinery. I'm bringing you back in a scene that just sort of reminds me a little bit of Rocky Horror Picture Show. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Frankenfurter is called back to Transylvania. That's the end, and they are going to head home. And next issue, we are going to see Count Nefaria, who until now, I believe, has only been an Avengers villain. But as I said, he's also an Iron Man villain. Well, he's an Avenger. So, Yeah. uh, yeah. So we're starting to do a little bit more mixing and matching here. Yeah. Overall, I, <laughs> uh, way, way too many words on some of these pages. Some things that don't really seem to make much sense in terms of what exactly Professor X's plan was, even though it ended up working. Some questionable art, but it's fun. It had some high points, but overall, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, a disappointing issue after last issue seemed like a strong start to Roy Thomas's run of the book. I still like Whisper. I'm glad that we know what his deal is and how that all went down. It's an okay issue, but not as good. A couple of things I wanted to point out. As they're falling, Angel accidentally knees Iceman in the head, and Iceman says, oops, watch the knee, worry boy, W-A-R-R-Y boy, <laughs> which, uh, I, you know, I don't know, how, Roy, how many friends you have named Warren, but I don't think they actually go by the nickname worry boy. I gotta say that one of the things that Roy Thomas will become known for doing particularly well is final pages of issues, whether it's even an android could cry or even better, the issue I think just before after that, where you have the black boy in a poor neighborhood playing with Ultron's head that he's found and they have a Shelley poem. There's a lot of great Roy Thomas final pages. This is not one of them. They, uh, they're quickly wrapping things up. And so we saved the cause of human freedom on Earth, Professor, and never learned from where our enemy came. Professor Eric says, true Cyclops, but still we won. And that, after all, is the only thing of importance. And it's sort of this, well, OK, final dialogue that doesn't have any sort of poetry to it. But Roy Thomas will get much better at that. 
Okay. So we are at the end of this episode, if I'm not mistaken. We are very grateful that we had David Baldeon to help us out with the first two issues. As we said, we recorded another segment with him, which will start out our next episode. Check his work out. It is great. Then I'm looking forward to finishing this month up in the next episode. Yes, this has been a great beginning. And well, I yeah, this has been five pretty good books, but none of them have been perfect. But there's been some great material and Marvel is clicking on all cylinders. But let's go ahead and get you a huge book next. So we will see you next time, America. Absolutely. And once again, the rest of the world. I am not a chauvinist like Matt is. Yes. Okay. (laughs) All right. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. Bye. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.